0: Hello.
1: Hey, how are you? Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
1: I can. This is Katie Summer. She teaches second and third grade at a Montessori school in the Milwaukee Public School District. And like a lot of good people, she studied history at UWM.
0: So I graduated from UW Milwaukee with um, a bachelor's of art in history and anthropology.
1: Katie makes this love of history a part of her daily routine as an educator ending each school day by reading from a story or a history book.
0: I love history, and I love reading, and I can tell that my students share that too. Um, And that's something that, like, they'll come back and tell me. I'm actually Facebook friends with a couple of my students that I taught years ago. And they'll tell me every once in a while, I still remember this history lesson or I still remember this book that you read to us. And it's like a really happy memory for me. And I'm like, you know, it it hits you.
1: Like a lot of us last spring, Katie first learned about the coronavirus through social media and the news. But she only realized just how serious it would be when the world came to a screeching halt in mid-March.
0: You know, it was always one of those things where like we talk in the hallway and we're like, "Okay, yeah, I'm concerned about this, you know, and it really started sinking in for me. Um, I had I had a couple of students in my class whose parents were doctors and they told me actually the Friday before everything closed, they told me that that was their last day that their kids were going to be at school. And that's I think when it really started sinking in for me that this is going to be a huge thing. It was actually that night that the governor declared the state of emergency and that schools were closed.
1: If you have school-aged children, you remember this moment from last year very well. In Milwaukee, the governor's order closed nearly 200 public schools, turning roughly 75,000 students and 10,000 teachers into homeschoolers overnight. More than a year later, Katie still remembers just how crazy this time was.
0: I mean, like In the beginning, it was crazy. It was um, last March. We found out about it April. We started doing kind of lessons back with the kids, and that was even crazier um, because we had no guidance of what lessons to plan. Um, so it was me trying to figure out which lessons I could give to my students that didn't require materials because we couldn't get back in the building. Um, we were allowed back in the building once after the pandemic was declared, the emergency state of emergency was declared. And that was my day to get plants and animals out of my room. Um, so, so I, uh, I couldn't grab materials
1: Unlike a lot of private schools and suburban districts in the area, Milwaukee Public Schools have remained fully virtual since last March. Thankfully, however, Katie has time to plan for this academic year. Like before, her day begins with a morning check-in with all of her students before breaking out into age-specific lesson groups, which is the Montessori model. The only difference? All of this now happens over Google Meet.
0: I mean, there's always the funny times, you know, like where your students don't realize that they're they're, they're... Volume is still on.
1: In fact, Katie says sometimes the biggest difference that she notices between this year and the last is that with all of the kids in their homes, she actually gets a real lunch break for the first time in her career.
0: Ever since you said that you were going to interview me, I was trying to think what is the biggest difference for me with virtual versus in person? And the answer I came up with was I actually have a lunch break. Um, I have a lunch break that is just about me. Um, usually when the kids are in the building, I am setting up a lesson or I'm covering a duty or I am quickly scarfing down my lunch before having to go talk to a, a student who's having a really hard day or just got in trouble on the playground or, you know, is having a disagreement in the lunchroom. Um, I've actually started running on my lunch break and that's been a really nice, like just centering moment for me that I can get myself back to what I need to do.
1: After lunch, Katie holds office hours where parents and students can stop by either for more advanced or remedial instruction. And then, as before, she ends the day with a storybook or a history lesson.
0: You know, it's really easy as a teacher during this whole pandemic thing to say, okay, well, I only have them for a certain amount of time each day. So I have to, I have to cram information into that time. And uh, one of my fellow coworkers reminded me how important it is to be goofy with them sometimes, too.
1: What do you wish parents knew that they don't know about? what it's like being a teacher during this time or what it's like being a student during this time?
0: Um, I think the number one thing that I wish parents knew was that, and I, I can't tell you, it breaks my heart every time I hear this, and I've actually heard this a lot in the last couple of weeks because of conferences, um, how behind is my kid? How, how behind is my child? How much is this year going to hurt them? And it breaks my heart. And I really wish that they knew that and I, I did talk to them about this and I really hope it hit home that we're all in this together. We're all in uh, we're all experiencing this way. You know, everybody's having struggles and your kid is your your child is not going to be behind. Wherever your child ends up at the end of this school year, like if we end up being virtually entire school year, but come back in the fall, no matter what happens, no matter what teacher you're at, your teacher will pick up your student where they are and move from there. We're going to be okay. You know, and part of it is realizing that this is their social emotional feelings right now are just as important as the academic. We're just going to move forward from where we are when we all go back.
1: It sometimes feels that the most important thing about this pandemic is the disruption that it's caused to K-12 education. Whether or not our kids go to school has often been only just behind healing the sick as the center of our national discourse. And the same was true almost 100 years ago. From the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History, I'm Chris Cantwell. And in partnership with the Milwaukee County Historical Society, this is The Healthiest City, a podcast about Milwaukee and its pandemics. When influenza hit the city in the winter of 1918, Milwaukee's public health commissioner, George Rulin had to decide which was the greater risk, interrupting the social and intellectual development of the community's children or allowing large gatherings of people in enclosed places, which would certainly spread the disease. The debates Rulin had with both himself and the city sound shockingly like our own. But as we'll see, Milwaukee also took a very different path in turning to the city's school district to help fight the pandemic rather than just weather it and it suggests the path we could have taken today. Our pod story in Daniel Kaler has the story.
2: When news first broke that Vernon, Stacy and Dee Henderson had brought influenza to Milwaukee from the Great Lakes Naval Training Center in September of 1918, city officials initially told residents not to worry. In fact, according to Milwaukee Health Commissioner George C. Ruland, the only thing that Milwaukee had to fear
3: about the so-called grief or Spanish flu was fear itself. Worrying can bring on Spanish influenza. Thinking you are going to get the gripe, now that it is talked about so much, can cause you to get it. An effective way to combat sickness is in the mind.
2: RULIN had been appointed health commissioner in 1916 by Mayor Daniel Hone. He was part of the Socialist Party's rapid expansion and reconfiguration of the health department and other city services. But in ways that eerily mirror our own moment in time, he initially downplayed the flu's threat to the city. To be sure, Ruland knew the flu was dangerous and took steps to address it. He asked the Naval Training Station to restrict the movement of its sailors, canvassed the city's physicians to determine how many cases they had identified, and issued a number of what he called helpful suggestions on how to avoid getting the flu, which included maintaining adequate heat in homes. But his initial posture to the disease was largely one of indifference.
3: Spanish influenza was nothing more or less than the old-fashioned greep. It should be treated as one would treat a severe cold, and a doctor should be called whenever a person is suffering from a severe cold. The epidemic is nothing to be scared about, but all precautions should be taken to prevent the spreading.
2: However, escalating events soon forced the health commissioner to act. Ruler's initial canvass of the city's physicians revealed that there were already at least 100 cases of Spanish flu in the city. By the end of September the city was reporting 100 new cases each day. In response, Rulin called a series of meetings with the city's doctors and newspaper reporters in order to launch a public health campaign to educate the city about the flu. Perhaps aware of the smallpox riots of 1894, Ruland had flyers printed in English, German, Polish, Lithuanian, Yiddish, Russian, Italian, and other languages that informed city residents of the disease and how to prevent its spread. They were called Dr. Ruland's Rules for the Prevention of Influenza, and they sound strikingly familiar
3: today. Walk to work if possible. Avoid persons who cough or sneeze. Cover your nose and mouth with a handkerchief, and wash your hands before eating. In addition to a robust educational campaign...
2: Ruland also sought to get the community's buy-in for any forthcoming public health measures by establishing a four-person emergency advisory committee that included the Dean of Marquette's Medical School, the head of Wisconsin's Anti-Tuberculosis Association, and the presidents of Alice Chalmers Manufacturing, and the Boston Store. The plan proved wise. By the end of the first week of October, the city was reporting over 200 new cases a day necessitating drastic action. First, Ruland coordinated and expanded the city's hospitals in anticipation of a coming wave of patients. But we'll talk more about that in the next episode. What became the most pressing concern for many city residents at the time were closures. With the support of his advisors and the consent of the city's common council, Ruland initially banned public gatherings at churches, meeting halls and places of amusement and placed restrictions on saloons, restaurants, and retail establishments. But on Saturday, October 12th, city residents awoke to a blaring headline atop the Milwaukee Sentinel. Schools will be closed beginning on Monday. Drastic action that eclipses anything of the kind ever attempted by Milwaukee is being taken in the fight of the city and state in an effort to check the spread of Spanish influenza. This means that all public and parochial schools in Milwaukee and throughout the state will be closed up until such time when the department believes the danger of
3: influenza is past.
2: For those of us living through the mix of hybrid, virtual, or in-person schooling over the last year, this announcement might bring to mind the challenges many teachers and families have experienced throughout the coronavirus pandemics. Whether to open schools and how has been a hot-button issue. But according to historian Kevin Abing at the Milwaukee County Historical Society, the closure of Milwaukee schools due to the outbreak of Spanish flu was just another day in 1918.
4: Well, you know, the, the, that that fall of 1918 school year had already been uh, interrupted or, or disrupted, if you will, uh, you know, because of the war effort. I mean, there was all sorts of of activities you know uh not necessarily bond rallies but you know there were war stamps and other programs in which the the kids were encouraged to uh to contribute um, there was flag raising ceremonies and all that kind of thing so the the, the year was already kind of odd to begin with <laughs> released to the newspapers after he got this uh closing order um, you know he Called it a, a vacation, basically. You know, he said, "Oh, I hope the children ha- enjoy this little vacation and you know use their time uh, fruitfully, etc." Um, so now, I I don't know if he was just trying to make you know put this in the best light possible, or if that's the way he really thought. Uh, but uh, it pretty quickly became apparent that this was a, a much bigger deal.
2: The scale of the crisis became clear when, by mid-October the city began reporting over 300 cases of the flu a day, turning what the Milwaukee Public Schools superintendent pitched as a little vacation into a nearly month-long lockdown. And unlike the coronavirus pandemic today, there was no opportunity for virtual learning. 82,000 children and 1,700 teachers from over 130 public and private schools sat idle. Newspaper reports at the time documented stories of children whose parents had fallen ill, roaming about neighborhoods and tenements, leading to the potential for more cases of the disease. But it was at this point that Commissioner Rulin realized that part of the city's problem could actually be a part of the solution as well. Teachers, who were technically city employees, could be reassigned to do work in other city departments. As Rulin told the Milwaukee Sentinel
3: reporter, i am in hopes the physicians and nurses of the school board will be united with the forces of the health department in handling this disease while the force of teachers could be called upon for inspection work with more effect because of their numbers and also because they are accustomed to maintaining health rules among the children by organizing them as a supplementary sanitary health force in this juncture great good could be effected according to kevin hobbing teachers became vital frontline social
2: workers during the spanish flu epidemic providing a number of services to families in need.
4: You know, there there were all sorts of different circumstances. I mean, every household really was different because uh, uh, there's uh, cases where, uh, you know, some teacher where they went, go to a household and, you know, the Parents are afflicted with the Spanish flu, and the kids are, you know, nobody's taking care of the children, or the entire family's afflicted. And so, you know, some of these teachers would have to basically, you know, clean up the house and and cook meals for for some of these families and, you know, things of that sort. Um, But the the whole uh, purpose behind this effort was to uh, improve the reporting of the number of cases of the Spanish flu around Milwaukee.
2: Ruland's creativity and quick thinking proved successful. By the end of October, the number of daily cases in the city dropped below 300. In early November, there were only about 500 active cases left in the city. And so with conditions improving, Ruland announced that schools could reopen on Monday, November 4th. In
3: view of the fact that the epidemic of influenza in the city of Milwaukee appears to have subsided to a sufficient extent where it appears safe and reasonable to remove the restrictive and regulatory measures instituted by the health department, I, the Commissioner of Health in and for the city of Milwaukee, hereby order, under the special powers conferred upon me by law, that the official orders published heretofore and formulated for the purpose of controlling and preventing public gatherings, shall be and are hereby canceled and revoked. I further urge that the public continue to exercise every precaution for personal protection and carry out the instructions with regard to the use of the handkerchief when coughing, sneezing, or spitting, and other practices of personal cleanliness, and that all institutions in which large groups of people are brought together assist in the carrying out of these precautionary measures and help to avoid crowding in these places of assemblage.
2: City residents, however, did not heed Ruin's warning. When the news broke that Germany had agreed to the cessation of hostilities in Europe and an armistice would be signed on November 11th, Milwaukeeans took to the streets to celebrate. Kevin Abing describes the scene.
4: As well, uh, the war ended like a week after Ruland lifted that, that closing order. and of course, you know the whole city just went crazy with celebrations and parades and, and the taverns and saloons were more packed. Uh, and and, you know that really that was what you would call a super spreader event definitely was uh, uh, I think the the key though there were all sorts of other other things that were going on Um, uh, for example in uh, along the the lake shore uh, I mean there was a crowd of hundreds of people that gathered to take part in you know they were being filmed uh, to create what they call a joy reel, uh, a film that was going to be sent to uh, Milwaukee soldiers overseas you know, so they could see all their loved ones you know, waving and that kind of thing.
2: Within a week, Milwaukee's flu numbers began to flare up yet again. The city began recording more than 300 cases a day as hospitals once again began to fill up. To combat the second wave, Rulin once more turned to the city's schools. But instead of employing teachers to look after the sick, he turned to the children to shame their parents for not adhering to the city's guidelines. Students brought home flyers in every language outlining the city's expectations, reminding them to wash their hands, keep their distance, and wear a mask. Rulin then reinforced this more personal tactic with more aggressive public shaming by placarding the homes of those families with active flu cases. As the Milwaukee Sentinel reported, Several thousand red quarantine cards have been printed and will be distributed by the health department among physicians. The latter will be requested to placard the homes of those suffering with influenza. It is believed that through the quarantine process, additional care will be exercised and in that manner prevent those sick with the flu from associating with persons not afflicted. But even these measures could not stop the spread. And on December 12th, Rulin ordered the city's schools shut down again. This second closure order was more elaborate than the first, carving out a few exceptions for private schools and colleges. Groups of five could receive instruction at these places, which allowed them to stay open. Downer Women's College on the city's east side, whose buildings are now a part of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's campus, employed its own medical staff to ensure the students could continue coming to class. As College President Alan Sabin told the press, we have two nurses who are giving the girls their constant attention and classes are being held regularly. The superintendent of Milwaukee's public schools instructed teachers to outline 8 to 10 days of work that students could do at home. Schools remained closed through the Christmas and New Year's holiday season, reopening on January 2, 1919. Later that month, Milwaukee's flu cases were low enough that the rest of the city began to reopen as well, and life in Milwaukee gradually returned to normal. George Ruland remained Milwaukee's public health commissioner for the next five years, moving on to become the health commissioner for the city of Syracuse, New York in 1925, where he remained for the rest of his career. Ruland oversaw minor outbreaks of the flu in Milwaukee in 1919 and 1920. He became a strong advocate for a number of progressive public health measures, including clean drinking water and access to professional health services for Milwaukee schoolchildren but his handling of the great influenza outbreak became his shining achievement. Thanks to his quick, aggressive action from October through December 1918, not only did the city ultimately report one of the lowest death totals in the country for a city of its size, but schools were closed for a total of just five weeks. But even though the city did well in combating the flu, it did not mean that the fight was easy. In fact, Ruland's orders created a number of challenges for impacted institutions. And it's to their stories that we
1: turn next. Daniel Kaler is getting his master's degree in public history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with a certificate in museum studies.
0: 1929, men and women, she was dying from a disease, what the doctor called a flu. People died everywhere, death went creeping through the air. Father grown, after sick, she was there.
1: Well, our show today was produced by Dan Kaler with help from Tony George, myself, and the students of History and New Media at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. This episode featured material from the Milwaukee County Historical Society and the digital archives of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Ben Schultz provided the voice for Health Commissioner George Rulin, while Ken Bartell read for us from the Milwaukee Sentinel. Music for this episode is by Poddington Bear and the Blue Dot Sessions, while our concluding song is called The Influenza Blues and comes from a recording held by the American Folklife Center. Special thanks this week continues to go out to Kevin Abing at the Milwaukee County Historical Society for helping us access the archive, and to Judith Levitt, whose book The Healthiest City gave us both information and the title for our show. The Healthiest City is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. For more information about the influenza pandemic, including images and documents from the era, check out milwaukeehistory.net slash podcast. And as always, thanks for
0: listening. End in is a disease to make you weak, all in your knees. Killer a fever, everybody should address. Put a pain in every bone a few days and you are gone to a place in the ground called a grave. It was God's almighty hand, he judging
1: this old man, knocking down.